As I mentioned earlier, Thanksgiving is right around the corner, and if you're like me, uh, you're anticipating that just as some sort of mental hit-the-brakes moment in the year. If you're, You are like me. You run fast, you work hard, you're doing a lot. This is a survival state, a survival community. We have to work hard, and we have to um, run hard to make it all work here. And it creates in us, hard work does, the need for stopping, for eating, for eating good food, for eating food that you don't normally eat. I don't eat yams except once a year. And if I have to, I do it, you know? I don't eat green bean casserole as a daily thing, but those things happen around Thanksgiving. I don't watch football right now. I do. I watch football all the time. But, you know, I'm a Christian. I watch football. It's okay. But Thanksgiving is about watching uh, football. It's about sitting around. But most of all, for us around the holiday season, we're longing for connection. We want to know people who know us, and we want to be known by people who care about us. We want to connect And perhaps you connect even virtually with uh, your FaceTiming or Skyping across the country or across the world with people whom you love. But with those connections, there is still the temptations that come along with connecting with people who know you, right? This is a fallen world, and in our fallen world, these connections are interrupted by our own sins or our own unresolved conflicts with people whom we love. We're moving towards people where there is angst, right, during Thanksgiving. It's hard, but it's this sort of necessary thing that's in our hearts that we want fed. We want our parents. We want our brother. We want our sister. We want our children during the holiday season, and we want that connection. But sin, nevertheless, does interrupt that connection. It makes it hard, and we need to pray for those connections to happen, pray for those conversations to happen, or just pray for amicable times with people whom we love, right? And that's part of Thanksgiving. That's part of the difficulty. When you are in the body of Christ, there is something afforded to you, though, in the brothers and sisters you have here. Perhaps you don't have some of the family drama or family angst, and you can enjoy the family of God in a way that is unique. It's a rare and special blessing to actually enjoy blood relationships with people who are in Christ. And I confess I have that in my brother who's a pastor and we have a great relationship and it's a rare opportunity to enjoy friendship where we can talk about anything, football or, you know, just life highs and lows, but also we can talk about Christ. I have that with my parents and those are, those are precious things to to have, but not everybody has that, right? Yeah, not everybody has peace with their blood family members uh, and peace with God with their blood family members, but it is a rare blessing and it is unique to enjoy and we should all enjoy it within the family of Christ. But let me tell you this, perhaps you don't have any of that, but you have Christ. In Christ, We have, as the proverb says, a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Now that's talking about any 
body life relationship that you have, a friendship in Christ should supersede any other kind of friendship. The deepest friendships I've ever had, and I still have some 30-year relationships with buddies of mine who came to Christ with me in high school. We were walking one way, and we knew each other, and we were like brothers in that realm, and then we all came to faith in Christ in the span of about a year to a year and a half, and we're still strong today, and we're stronger because of Christ. But I want to tell you something. Something should supersede even that, and that is the friend that sticks closer than a brother who is Christ. You all, as believers, have the opportunity to know someone intimately and personally who knows everything about you. And who knows everything about you, walks with your every day and your every daily need, and loves you nevertheless, and loves you more than you could imagine that you are loved. You have Christ. Isn't that amazing? You have Jesus as your friend who walks with you and talks with you. So as you navigate Thanksgiving relationships, Thanksgiving relations, as you navigate wins and losses emotionally over this next week, you have Christ. Don't forget Christ. Make him the centerpiece of who feeds your soul, whom you are fed by, whom you worship. To know Christ in this way is an amazing thing. And I dare say that you cannot know Christ in this way if you do not reflect upon not only the deity of Christ, that he is God, who's able to know everything about you, but you also have to reflect on the humanity of Christ to enjoy the intimacy that I'm talking about. You have to believe and know, and this is sort of the takeaway point of the message, you have to know that Jesus is as human as you are. Jesus Christ is as human as you are. He's as much a person as you are. That takes nothing away from his deity, but though focusing on his deity is of paramount importance in the gospel, you also need to give equal attention to the full humanity of Christ. Hebrews chapter 1 has been drenched with, saturated with truths regarding the deity of Christ. It is an exulting text to work through, and we've done that. We've looked at Old Testament and New Testament references throughout chapter 1 that extol the deity and majesty of Christ, who is our Savior, who holds everything together, who is God, who has redeemed us, who is exalted at the right hand of the Father. We get that. But Hebrews chapter 2, especially in the text that we're going to begin in, begins to talk about someone who condescended and became a little lower than the angels, confining himself to this world in full flesh, in full humanity. What does that mean for you? What can it mean for you to understand that you are understood by another human who is Christ? It's amazing. And that's the, that's the task before us as we look at Hebrews chapter 2. We need to understand this friend who sticks closer to you than anyone ever possibly could. 
Point one on the humanity of Christ is that Jesus is as human as you are. We've talked to that a bit, but look at verse 10. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So for you to understand Christ's commitment to you will sink in when you understand how human Jesus really is and you can have the key to this found in this text. Understanding that Jesus as God, Savior, Creator, Redeemer is fully human. The distinction has been being made in chapter 1 between Christ and angels, right? Angels worship Christ. He is God. This is unmistakably true, but we need to understand that he, as a human, understands you fully. Now, you might say, look, I have broken fellowship with Christ. I have sins that keep me from understanding this Christ. I don't want to be known on the levels that you're talking about. Maybe you're thinking about that. Remember Peter when he sinned and denied Christ three times? I don't know him. I don't know him. I didn't walk with him. I didn't associate with him. Well, after Christ died and was raised, he met Peter on the beach to restore him. And he asked him three questions that basically challenged and were meant to to reconcile Peter's three denials. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter was saying, Lord, you know I love you. Lord, you know I love you. And in exasperation, I can hear Peter saying, Lord, you know I love you. And that's where Jesus wanted Peter to come to. It's as if Jesus was saying, do you really know that I love you? Jesus was trying to pull Peter outside of himself so that Peter would understand that Jesus was with Peter even in his darkest moments, even in his deepest denials. Is that where you are in regards to the intimacy of Christ? Do you know that Christ knows everything that you're doing, that you're up to, everything that you've ever done, everything that you ever will do, and his commitment is unwavering to you nevertheless? Isn't that amazing? Jesus is in your darkest moments. He's not sinning with you. Sin can't come to or from Christ in terms of his holiness. But he's there with you as your high priest. He's a faithful, faithful friend. Think of the greatest, if you've ever had a best friendship, where you can be so transparent with that friend that you're telling that friend even the secret sins of your heart. And you're, you're saying, I can't believe I'm this bad. Jesus knows you and knows that you are far worse than that. And he loves you nevertheless. That's the friendship that we have in Christ. I remember a really good friend of mine, early of my Christian experience. I think I was a freshman in college. And I was just struggling with guilt. I was struggling with trying to get through something. And he looked at me. We're sitting in a car kind of after a a youth group um, Sunday night event. We're sitting in the car, cars running. And he just looked at me in the spirit of Peter's restoration and just said, don't you understand? Jesus understands your needs. He He understands you. 
that word meant so much to me. I just had never applied Jesus in that way to my heart. That he understands you and he loves you nevertheless. I put wind in my sails. I was ready to go. Well, the context here is the salvation that we have in Christ. And what we see in verse 10 is that Jesus is called the founder of our salvation. Do you see that at the end of verse 10? And what authenticates Christ, according to the author here, what authenticates Christ as your Savior who is fully God and fully man, is that he suffered. What is it that makes Jesus the perfect savior? It's that he, as a human being, was made perfect through suffering. You want to talk about humanizing your savior? Do you realize that Jesus suffers with your sins right now. He's, the Holy Spirit is grieved by your sin. But back it up earlier to the life of Christ that he lived here while on earth. He suffered ridicule. He suffered hardship. He suffered being mocked. He suffered being beaten. He suffered being blasphemed against. He suffered all the way to the cross being whipped having his back ripped to shards. He suffered all the way being nailed to a cross for your sins. He had suffered in the garden in anguish before his father, not wanting to have to drink the cup of wrath. And yet he took the cup of wrath physically and spiritually upon himself on your behalf. How human is Christ? He's the perfect God-man, but fully man who endured Real pain, real suffering, emotional, physical, and spiritual on your behalf. That's how human Jesus is. That's how much he loves you. And that's how much he understands anything that you are going through physically, emotionally, spiritually. All of the above. This is what qualified Jesus to be the founder or foundation of your salvation. This is Christ. Verse 10 is amazing because it begins with a phrase that kind of threw me when I first looked at it. If you look at the front end of verse 10, it says, For it was fitting that he, and then it goes, For whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. What does that actually mean? What does that mean? That's a kind of an interesting verse. What is fitting here? I mean, the context again is speaking of salvation. Chapter 1, verse 14, a salvation we inherit. Um, Chapter 2, verse 1, we pay much closer attention to this salvation. We dare not drift away from it. It was a salvation declared by angels. Verse 3, it was a salvation declared directly from the lips of the Lord. It was attested by people who heard of this salvation and told others and God bore witness of this salvation by signs and wonders and miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit throughout the church. This is the salvation where 
Man was given paradise, Adam and Eve, in the garden to take dominion over this world. There's a promised renewal of this salvation, but man couldn't bring this renewal, having sinned and and plunged this world into sin. But then there's Christ, in verse 9, who for a little while was made lower than the angels and then was crowned in glory. This is salvation that is given to us, and there's something that is fitting here. It's fitting that Christ had to be made perfect through suffering. What does that mean? The founder of our salvation, does that mean that something was deficient in Christ before he could be our savior? What's fitting here? Well, let me answer it this way. We're going to take a Bible quiz. This is, you know, we're Anchorage Grace, but Grace Christian School is right down the hallway. So it's Bible quiz time. Three questions, pass or fail. Three questions. Number one, was Jesus born a sinner? Don't answer out loud. Number two, did Jesus ever sin while he was here on earth? And number three, was it even possible for Jesus to have ever sinned? Now, you'd like to think with those three questions that you could just ace it. You go, well, question one, check, 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 got it. Question two, check. I'm going to pass this with flying colors. Then you get to to question number three, was it possible for Jesus to have ever sinned? The first two questions are a breeze, but getting the third right would be determined by whether or not you were on the same page with your professor or teacher, right? Think about that. Because one teacher would say, well, that, you know, when you speak of Jesus' impeccability um, or perfection, you have to understand he's God, so it would not have been possible for him to sin. But on the other hand, on the other hand, you have to understand Jesus was authentically human. So when he was tried in the wilderness, there was a pass or fail dimension that was authentic. Now, it's right. Yes, because Jesus is God, He was not going to sin. We understand that. But at the same time, the dynamics of being tempted, external temptation were real. And they were real pass or fail tests that if he had sinned, he would have disqualified himself from being our savior. Was that genuinely a test as if he could have failed? I would say yes. Put another way, did Jesus genuinely grow up? Yes. Did Jesus genuinely mature in wisdom and stature, favor of God, favor of man? Yes. Did Jesus make daily decisions to obey and to not disobey, to be right rather than being wrong? Yes, he did all of that. Did he passionately cry out to the Father for the power to go to the cross? Did he genuinely have doubts and weaknesses? Yes. All of that genuineness is there and is Real, And that's what verse 10 is talking about. It's that Jesus was perfected through suffering. Legitimate, real suffering qualified Jesus to be our Savior. Hebrews 5, 7 through 10 says the same thing. This is actually, this is what teases out this point. Look over there, Hebrews 5, 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. I assume this is Gethsemane. To him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Did you see that? How dynamically authentic is Christ? He learned obedience through what he suffered. Even all the way up to the Garden of Gethsemane. And being made perfect, same word here, 
He became the source of eternal salvation. You can stop there. He learned obedience. And what what does all this mean? Verse 10. Back to verse 10. Chapter 2, verse 10. It is fitting. What's fitting? It's fitting that God should work in this amazing way that God the Father, the he here in verse 10 is talking about God the Father. It was fitting that God the Father for whom and by whom all things exist. So God the Father is holding all things together. Hebrews 1 also says the same thing in verse 3 about Christ. God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit, they're all involved in holding all this together as the Godhead. But you have God the Father who, where everything that he's holding it together that exists is bringing glory to himself. It's for whom, it's for him, and it's by him that everything's holding together and reflecting glory back to him, this grand picture of this sovereign, glorious God. And what is he up to while he's doing that? He's sweeping people into the kingdom from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. He's sweeping people in and anchorage into the kingdom. He's sweeping people in to the kingdom all over the world. This incomprehensible God who's holding everything together, it cares about bringing people into the kingdom. And then it goes from lofty to earthy and very personal here at the end of verse 10. It's fitting that this magnanimously awesome God, incomprehensible God, should make the founder of our salvation, the one who became lower than the angels, perfect through suffering. What you have here is, is deity and humanity. It's, it's framed beautifully in chapter 10. God is not so lofty that he can't be understood personally. God understands you personally and intimately. This is how God works. Jesus is our savior who had to suffer to grow. He's just like any human being who's ever lived and guess what Jesus Christ where you sit today completely gets you he gets you he knows you he understands you yes you have this grand glorious picture of redemption taking place from an incomprehensible god and that's god the father god the son god the holy spirit and you have Jesus who entered into this world and suffered genuinely as a human being And is still fully human at the right hand of the Father. And he totally gets you. And he's totally with you where you are today. That's Jesus. We need that hope. Listen, amen? Can we be a dialogue for a minute here? Amen? Isn't that a praise the Lord? Praise the Lord. Amen? Point two. Jesus is unashamed to be your elder brother. You need a family member? How about Jesus Christ as your older brother? Look at verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Now, we're taking things deeper into the humanity of Christ. He does this by introducing Jesus as your sanctifier. What does that mean? That means that Jesus is intimately and personally involved in your spiritual growth. Jesus cares about you, and he cares about you being holy. He cares about growing you. It's amazing. He not only knows you and knows your weaknesses, but he's helping you through your weaknesses. 
He's shoring up things. He's bringing things into your life. He is the refiner's fire that's bringing the impurities to the surface surface so you can deal with them, so that you can repent of them, so that you can be more like Christ. He's growing you. What does this mean? You know, you might say, Christ saved me, and I know that he did that all by himself. You didn't save you, Christ saved you, right? Christ alone saves you. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. Lest any man should boast, you didn't do it. If you had anything to do with your salvation, you messed it up, and it's not real. Jesus saved you. You were dead, and he made you alive, Ephesians 2, 1. That's how it works. But you say, okay, I thought he saves me, but then I grow me, right? He does his work, and now it's up to me to grow myself. Well, guess what? You need to understand salvation and sanctification are growing spiritually in three categories. First of all, being saved is monergism. It's God alone, mono alone, where he brings you to life, monergism. You're saved by grace alone. Sanctification is synergism. It's where he works and you work concomitantly, two sides of a coin. You're working together. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God to work, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You're working together, right? That's Philippians 2.12. Colossians 1.29, Paul says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. He's toiling and God's working to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. We're to buffet our body. We're to run the race, but we're doing it in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a sanctifying work of Jesus. But there's a third category, and this is one that has been introduced to me in the latter um, parts of my Christian life, which has been very freeing, but it's very biblical. God also, Christ as your sanctifier also, is sanctifying you monergistically. So there's monergism. It's Christ alone who saves It's synergism. It's you and Christ working together. He's your life coach. You're in the gym. Hey, do some reps. Keep working. Keep working. And then there is monergism where God is going to sanctify you whether you want to be sanctified or not. Isn't that amazing? You say, where is that in scripture? Well, and I'm sure of this, Philippians 1, 6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. John 15, 5, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me, you're linked to the vine. Um, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. The life source is Christ, and he's just going to work it even if you aren't involved in it at this moment. I'm not recommending that, but it's very comforting to know that what God began, he's finishing, and he's bringing you to glory. Romans eight twenty eight. You know that all things work together for the good, for those that love God and are called according to his purpose, those he's predestined to be, um, for those whom he foreknew, he also, listen, predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. If you're saved, the train has left the station. You are being conformed into the image of his son. You might be sitting there going, I know I'm saved, but you don't realize where I am. And where I should be and where I'm not, well, guess what? Jesus knows. Jesus is there and Jesus is working on you nevertheless. It's amazing. 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. 
For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus. When Jesus comes back, you're not going to be embarrassed. You're being sanctified at that moment up to that point. 1 John 1.7, we walk in the light as he is in the light and we have fellowship with one another. That's just confirming that you're saved. Well, what's going on behind the scenes? And the blood of Jesus' his son cleanses us from all sin. That's continual cleansing of all sin that's going on. Christians are being worked on. Sometimes you're in the gym, you're doing well, you're doing uh, reps with the Lord and he's your life coach. And sometimes you're in intensive care and it's as if you're dead spiritually. And Jesus is right there with you as the physician of your soul. He's plugged you in intravenously pumping life in you, sustaining you, keeping you alive, growing you working and you say that didn't work my life is upside down I I haven't been in church things aren't well with me you don't understand my family he's right there with you he's never left you he never forsook you he won't do that he's the friend that sticks closer than a brother he's a best friend and he's the best friend that you want to have and want to you want to cultivate this relationship acknowledge that Christ is there with you no matter where you are or aren't spiritually He's the sanctifier. Verse 11, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. You have you know, two categories here. You have the sanctifier, that's Christ, and then you have the sanctifies, that's all of us as Christians. But we have something in common. We all have one source. In one sense, you could say, man, this is confusing. Does this mean, and you could incorrectly interpret this to believe that Christ was born at some point or originated. People, you know, cult religions would say that Christ originated from from God the Father, and that's completely untrue. The one source here is speaking about our one source in Adam. Or you could say, well, how is Christ connected to Adam? Because wouldn't that mean that the, the sin of Adam that has been passed on from you know, age to age, person to person, as they are born into this world, that Christ was, was involved in that and was given a sin nature? Is that what this is saying? No, not at all. Not at all. Paul in, um, in Acts 17, and you can turn there if you want, verse 24 and following, is preaching on Mars Hill at Areopagus, and he's defending the faith as a great apologist and he says that from every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth that every nation every person who's ever lived on the face of the earth came from one man it's the same greek word here it's ex henos it's one source and who is that one source well it's adam it's adam now paul like the author of hebrews uh, is also extolling that God is sovereign and huge. He, in this section in Acts 17, he says he made the world and everything in it. He gave it all life and breath. But every human being under God's greatness came humanly from one source or one man. What does that mean? Well, Jesus was born to a, a virgin, right? The Spirit of God hovered over 
Mary, Luke chapter 1, verse 35, it says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. What does this mean? This means that Jesus was genuinely and legitimately conceived in Mary by the Holy Spirit. How legitimate is the humanity of Christ in this moment? As legitimate as yours is. Yes, it was an immaculate conception, but was Jesus fully human in that moment? Fully being fed by an umbilical cord in that moment? Yes or no? How human is Jesus Christ? He's as human as you and I are. That's how much he can relate. If we could remember those moments... Well, it would be like Jesus's memories. It's incredible. The earliest memory I have, I think, is being in a church nursery, put in bars. You remember the, the cribs that used to be up along the walls and they would pull them up, right? And they'd stack us up, you know? Ain't no fruit snacks back then, baby. I mean, you're just, you're, you're just in there. But I remember those moments. But Jesus, listen, Jesus, it, he's that human, He's that human, but without sin. He's a high priest that relates to us in every way and our weakness and temptations, but without sin. Jesus was born to a real mother. And in that sense, as, as Mary born a sinner through Adam's race, you, you have Jesus who was conceived in her womb, fully human, but without sin because it was a conception by the Holy Spirit. So Adam's sin was no part of Jesus, but Jesus was fully hum, human being from that same human source. So what? Who cares, right? Well, the author is very clear about why this matters. You say, who cares? Well, look at verse 11. This is why this matters. That is why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them, applied here, you, brothers. Let me broaden it, to call you brothers and sisters. He's human, you're human. He's perfect, you're not, but he calls you brother and sister. He's your older brother. It's a lot of family tensions where people will become estranged from each other. And it's as if you're not able to call your spouse or your ex or your parents family anymore. Or you feel like you can. Maybe you've been neglected or abused or you've had someone walk away from you. Well, Jesus isn't doing that. He knows every, he has every reason in the world to walk away from you, right? But because of his covenanted love, his deep commitment to you, he's not ashamed of you. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me. I wanted to gather Israel in this way as a mother hen to, you know, gathering chicks. Jesus loves you like that, and he is your brother, he accepts you. In the Greek culture, there was this shaming that would, that would take place where people would be officially estranged and kicked out of their families. It was a common practice where 
Um, a father would not acknowledge a son or a wife or a daughter. And parents uh, suffer in this regard. Um, you know, they sometimes feel the pains of unrequited love, right? Well, not with Christ. Look at John fifteen fifteen. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. It's intimacy that's unparalleled. It's unmistakably beautiful. I'm describing a relationship where Christ who knows you, listen, he lives in the middle of your circumstances and cares to be there. He's always there. Mary and the half-brothers of Jesus needed to learn a hard lesson. Um, the brothers, the half-brothers of Jesus were mocking Jesus literally saying, hey, go down to the Feast of Booths, go show off if you're this um, super brother. And uh, Jesus ultimately got into full-fledged ministry and he was casting out demons and was being blasphemed against for it. And he and his disciples were starving to death because they were in a healing ministry um, exercising demons ministry and preaching ministry primarily. And the brothers and, and um, mother became very worried about Jesus. And they claim, Mark 3.21, that Jesus must be out of his mind. So they gathered around him and they tried to get to him. But the crowds were so thick that they couldn't get to him. And they were calling out to him and saying, you know, come with us, Jesus. And Jesus didn't respond to them. He ultimately said in Mark 3.33, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. That's how connected we are in faith to Christ. Let's finish with verses 12 and 13. The third point here is that Jesus stands with you as a present savior. Jesus is as human as you are. He's unashamed to be your older brother and he stands with you as a present savior. Verse 12, he's saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Jesus is not only not ashamed of you, guess what Jesus is pictured as doing here? He's quoting verses, first of all, from Psalm 22, and then from Isaiah chapter 8, to say Jesus is willing to sing about you, to celebrate you, and to publicly do so. The vantage point of these verses is where the power is. The vantage point of these verses is not Jesus lofty in heaven singing down upon you. The vantage of these point verses is the vantage point of David boots on the ground with his people. Isaiah boots on the ground prophesying about God's deliverance of Judah. And Jesus takes on a first person voice here saying, I will sing about you. I will publicly celebrate you because I love you. How do you know someone loves you? It's when they are unashamedly saying it out loud before the world. I love this person. I'm identified with this person and I am with this person to the end. Jesus is a present savior in that way. Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm. It talks all about um, David's sufferings that parallel and are exact quotations of Jesus' suffering on the cross. But this is applied immediately to 
Jesus Christ, and it's Psalm 22, 22, which is the turning point where it's portraying Christ as victorious. Christ is resurrected. He's raised from the dead, just like David was victorious through his suffering in the armies of God. Jesus is victorious, and he says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst, right in the middle of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Verse 13, I will put my trust in him. This is Isaiah 8, and it's Isaiah who was basically prophesying over Judah because you have Syria and you have Israel, a divided kingdom, and you have outside um, Gentile um, threats that are coming upon Judah. They want to dethrone King Ahaz in the southern kingdom. They want to take him out, and ultimately Isaiah sees in a prophecy that Assyria is going to wipe out the northern kingdom, and wipe out Syria. And so he's extolling God's grace and saying, I will put my trust in him. Jesus Christ, as fully human on this earth with us, is saying, I am trusting the Father with my praises over these people. And behold, I and the children God has given me. Isaiah 8, 18, Jesus is victor. He's in the foxhole with you. He understands. Listen, during this time, the Greco-Roman world would not have understood this kind of God whatsoever. Do you understand that? Yeah, you have Zeus who is a a captain and a general and this figurehead as a God who's, who's the authority. And that would be a parallel that the writer of Hebrews is picking up on. He's saying Jesus is the founder of your salvation. But he's not like Zeus. It's not like Hercules. It's not like these, the mythological pantheon of gods. Yeah, they had human-like characteristics, but guess what? All of their human-like mythical characteristics were selfishness. They were based on lust. They were based on self. All the Greek pantheon, all the gods of this world are, are selfish gods who are detached. Jesus is the opposite. Jesus is a true, the true God who is a suffering servant a saving God who enters into your world. Instead of him being detached in a fake heaven, Jesus left heaven to come to this earth, not in detachment, but to suffer on the cross. There's a pastor who, I'll quote here, who said, no one has suffered more than this God on the cross. He enters into your human suffering in a way that no one else can because he suffered and died for you and he lives for you and he is your helper do not deny intimacy with the lord this thanksgiving or any other time right this is our god this is our christ who loves us and knows us